I'm Kohar. And I'm Iman. And you're tuned into another episode of Name It, your encyclopedia of big ideas changing how we think about the world and talk to each other. Yes, and today our big idea is, drumroll please, Black feminist thought. Hell yeah. Yes. Black feminist thought. You've heard about feminism, but have you ever heard it as a black feminist idea? Well, no. We're going to bring it to you today. (laughs) (laughs) So to start us off, what is the best advice you've ever gotten from another black woman? Oh, my gosh. Well, first of all, hearing this question from someone who's given me so much good advice and tender loving and care, it's hard because so many things come to mind from the jump. And one of my biggest mottos that I try to live by every day is just trust your intuition. And you ri- you remind me so often of that intuitive voice and the power that it holds. And I think so often because we don't see our voice or hear it or often see that represented, whether that's in the academy, it's in popular culture, you know, more and more we are seeing it. But When you're struck with that kind of dead end or that silencing, I think that makes it 10 times harder for you to, you know, honor your own voice and black women being around, whether that's my sisters, my mom, my grandmother, just reminding me that your voice is valid and your contribution is worthy is just something I carry with me all the time. And that's like on the very serious take, you know, I can think of so many different things, whether it's like caring about myself, making food, dinner, like so many aspects of life. Basically, I would not be alive without black women. It's like it's the affirmation of your existence. And it's the affirmation of the knowledge that you bring to this world matters and doesn't need to be validated by external sources, but it's constantly validated by the black women who are close to you. That's beautiful. That was so good. And I, I can think of like no better piece of advice to get us thinking about black feminist thought today, about knowledge, about affirmation of existence, than exactly what you just shared. That was so beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for that. You heard what I said and you brought it back even more beautifully phrased. What about you? I would say it's interesting because it's interesting the way that you can get similar advice from a lot of different Black women in your life, which also just goes to affirm like how valid that piece of advice is Mm. and how, you know, an experience or a piece of knowledge can be shared. But I feel like one that I got from a fellow graduate student is basically to like, don't conform to this space, that all these spaces that we're in, which are almost always predominantly white spaces, work classes or whatever, they will never conform to you. But you should also never conform to them. And so just being able to like have that understanding has been so helpful, has been really helpful. And obviously, you know, every advice is like easier said than done because there's so much pressure to perform in a certain way or articulate yourself in a certain way. But yeah, that was one. Also, another one that I'm thinking about, too, is I remember an undergrad 
all the uh, <laughs> upperclassmen, black women just would always tell me where the money was, where the money resides, yes. where the money resides. Finesse. So that was also to finesse. Exactly. Like, how do you like navigate these institutions to get what you want out of them? And I feel like every black woman that I've been so grateful to be, you know, doing things alongside or in their mentorship has always has always done that. Affirmed, affirmed my existence, told me not to conform and showed me where the money is. So isn't that the perfect three point plan? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah. There we go. There we go. So as we said, our big idea today is black feminist thought. But as always, before we get into our big idea, we are going to talk about our case study And the case study is the part of the show where we consider how our big idea is playing out, whether in current events, our own research and personal lives, or like today, a piece of history. Yes. And as Black women, we really find this genealogy that we're taking on today to be fundamental to our existence Mm -hmm. and to the affirmation of our existence as we are speaking of basically those women that validated their own existence so that we could kind of bask in that affirmation today. Yes. You know, 40 years. This has been 40 years. Almost more than 40 years. 40 years later. Yeah, almost 50. Almost 50. 50. Wow. So today, our case study is the story of the Kumbahi River Collective. And you might have heard about them in history classes, but The possibility is you haven't. Absolutely. In the way that Black feminist theory is often taken away from spaces of white feminism, Mm -hmm. of many conversations about gender at large, I think it's really important for us to lift up the Combahee River Collective, Mm -hmm. specifically their landmark statement that was written by the twin sisters Barbara and Beverly Smith and Demita Frazier in 1977. And this statement, which was rather a manifesto. Absolutely. It's so important because it provides the language and thinking that's associated with Black feminism today, Mm -hmm. as we were saying earlier, Mm -hmm. and that this language continues to speak truth to power even 50 years after it was put out in the first place. Mm -hmm. And it was first published in the book Capitalist Patriarchy and the Case for Socialist Feminism. and I think it's really important for us to understand this genealogy because it's one that is alive and well today yeah. that whose roots are not often understood deeply. Yeah. yeah. And before we get into this history, we just want to thank Marianne Jones, who's a writer who performed this incredible oral history with the Combahee River Collective founding members in 2021, which honestly was a tough year, but a very necessary year to preserve this history and Mm -hmm. to make it into a more accessible living archive. And we would not have been able to even produce this podcast about this statement today without your research. So thank you very much, sis, for making this a public free resource for us that we will definitely link for you all. Absolutely. You'll be able to find it in the show notes. And also just shout out to amazing like free public scholarship out there yes. that is accessible to everyone. Yeah. So the Combahee River Collective was a black feminist, lesbian and socialist organization, and it ran out of Boston between the years of 1974 and 1980. And these women in the collective, they were youth and community organizers. And in addition to the statement that they published in 1977, the collective, they worked on responses to desegregating public schools, 
Black employment and police brutality in Boston. And the collective was really forming during a really crucial moment in Boston. So, right, the collective was founded in 1974, and this was a major moment in Boston history because a court order had forced Boston public schools to desegregate and implement busing. And so, as obviously, as you can imagine, white people lost their minds about that. And you can Google <laughs> you can Google the riot photos. It's very it's giving January 6th. And, you know, it's it's so interesting, too, because like my mom talks about busing all the time. Like she was a kid that was bused to desegregate. Cleveland public schools and just even hearing I don't know why that just felt so distant from like so long ago or even yeah. like too early but it was like wow this was like really happening during a time when our parents were going to school and they uh, were impacted by it yeah the truth is it was happening when we were going to school right so Metco mm. is the busing system of Boston public schools that when I was in high school I knew kids that they just were like the Metco kids basically that they were bused to their schools. And Outside of their district? Yeah, and I didn't realize, you know, the origins of the, we're definitely in desegregation. Wow. And the reality is, with a lot of Massachusetts schools, as a mass hole myself, yes. I can uh, really talk <laughs> more deeply from experience here. A lot of schools are segregated, and I mean that literally. Mm -hmm. So when a school is like above 95% white, Let's start to think of that as a segregated school. Obviously. And I know that sounds a little ridiculous because, you know, a lot of listeners might be like, well, you know, desegregation happened so long ago. What do you mean? Yeah. There are people of color at these schools. But the point that we're getting to is that structural segregation, mm -hmm. that huge structural barrier to getting people into these spaces so it's important for us to understand this genealogy as being linked to Boston public schools being desegregated in the first place and that that was a black feminist movement. Yeah. That wouldn't have been possible without them. So thank you. Yes. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. And so in addition to like forming out of this really important moment in Boston history, the Combahee River Collective also formed in response to a gap that they saw in black feminist organizing in the 70s. So Smith, who at the time was working at Miss Magazine, met National Black Feminist Organization co-founder Margaret Sloan. And Smith and Frazier, both Barbara and Beverly Smith and Demita Frazier, had all attended the Eastern Regional Conference of the National Black Feminist Organization in 1973. And at the conference, they asked attendees to basically start chapters of the National Black Feminist Organization in their own hometowns. So Beverly and Barbara Smith and Demita Frazier, they began a chapter in Boston. However, they soon realized that they wanted to build on the NBFO's mission, but they wanted to create something that was more radical and included Black lesbian feminist and also social theory. So, for example, they wanted to form more of a collective rather than have an organization that had like a president and VP scheme. And they also wanted to account for what they said were the material situations of Black women under capitalism. So important, mm -hmm. so incredibly foundational to mm -hmm. so many organizations that exist today Yes, against these hierarchies to just collective thinking. Yes. We love that. Yes. And so births the Combahee River Collective. Mm -hmm. And this name is taken directly from Harriet Tubman's iconic raid on the Combahee River in South Carolina during the Civil War. 
So a little history tidbit is that not only is this group named after this moment of intense black radicalism mm-hmm. when it comes to the lived reality of, you know, freeing us from slavery. Mm-hmm. So Tubman was the first woman to lead an exposition for the Union Army. I feel like, do you agree that that is an understated part about Harriet Tubman? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know that. Mean, I, me neither. I, I didn't know that. I, I always thought, I know we're going to talk about, but I always thought that the Combahee River Collective was named after, like we mentioned, the indigenous tribe. I had no idea that Harriet Tubman had done this. Like that right. is not a part of, I feel like, her narrative and the kind of popular history that we The hear. sanitized narrative. Yes. So I think it's actually interesting that a film about Harriet, Harriet is the name of it, yeah. came out. Was it 2020, maybe? Oh, did you see it? I never saw it. I never saw it. But as I'm researching for this episode, I came across the raid scene. They they did include it in the movie. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was an interesting thing that despite, you know, the popular narrative that's kind of been fossilized in our history textbooks Mm -hmm. that are often not complete, they leave out her active resistance in the Union Army and then instead are like, you know, the Underground Railroad. Yeah. They kind of, they posit her in a way that's very underground. Yeah. And they describe her as if she's not like an active fighter in the resistance movement. Right, right. And it also, isn't that so interesting? Like the way that she's like, underground and that's almost like private like we can think about like women always being associated with the private sphere versus like her being leading this expedition for the union army like what space is more public than like warfare and expedition so like look at that just badass that's all i gotta say totally badass i mean she was that girl you know and i yes i would say the only reason i didn't watch the movie is because i have like a no like slave antebellum movie (laughs) criteria for myself it really just I just can't. It really it just does something for my soul. And so I just don't watch any of it. You know, sis, I get it. Will what Smith? about 12 Years a Slave? <laughs> so I saw 12 Years a Slave in a movie last one. at Dartmouth. That was my very last one. <laughs> I said never again. And yes, like even I. Anyways, Quentin Tarantino. Can we talk about it real quick? White people. Oh, it, that's my hot big thought. OK, that's my hot big thought. We'll I came it. up with it. All right. All right. We're going to tell you what it. I think. By the end, you got to stick around until then. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Back to Harriet. Back to Harriet. Back to our girl, Harriet. (laughs) (laughs) So during this raid, and now I understand why it's kind of silenced Mm -hmm. in, you know, this popular history, along with 150 black soldiers of the 2nd South Carolina Infantry, they raided a slave ship and freed 750 enslaved people. Wow. So I just think like, hell yeah. Yes. (laughs) She was actively, like, the way you hear her stories often in this very passive yes. tale, like, yes. you know, she secretly and privately escorted the people yes. to the safe yes. homes. Yes. No. She she went on to the slave ship and said, you know, I'm freeing you. Right. Literally. She was that messiah. So on that same note, yeah, we just wanted to acknowledge that mm-hmm. in further research, I couldn't help but note Combahee looks like an indigenous place name mm-hmm. and it is named after the river yeah combahee river in south carolina that takes its name from the indigenous tribe the combahee people so i think it's really important to note that especially as someone from the northeast where blackness and indigeneity are so intertwined mm-hmm. that it's both a perfect 
example of that kind of intertwined relationship that we I just want to learn kind of more about and open that door to further interrogation. And that's what your dissertation and your work is going to do. <laughs> that's the goal. Yes, yes. Yes. Absolutely. For sure. And so the collective, they named themselves after this very radical moment in, you know, U.S. Black history after Harriet Tubman and her work. They're forming because they want to address the gaps that they're seeing in Black feminist organizing at the time. They want to be more socialist. They want to center Black lesbian women. They want to speak back to heteronormativity. But they also formed in response to the fact that Black women did not have the resources, the networks, and the services necessary to address their concerns at the intersections of gendered and racialized and sexual violence. And so in this interview with the People's Anthology, Smith describes how she was working with domestic abuse victims at a hospital, and she realized that something needed to be done when a Black woman survivor showed her burns that her partner had given her with a cigarette. And Smith had realized then that she had basically she had nowhere to send this woman and nowhere to send this survivor. And so the collective's original vision was going to be to create a refuge for Black women in Boston, because at the time there simply wasn't any, none. Mm. Mm-hmm. And as a mass hole. <laughs> I I wasn't alive at that time, but you know Boston. Is I know my Boston city on the East Coast. Yeah, girl, you and a lot of other black people. <laughs> I know, even even yes, yes. I, was I like, mean, for a reason, you know. Mm-hmm. As we learn right here, so twelve black women were murdered in Boston between January and May in 1979. So much was happening in that year. Mm-hmm. First of all, mm-hmm. so much. Mm-hmm. Whether it was just the birth of. Hip hop. (laughs) Yes. Well, not that exact year, but so much was being revolutionized, was Mm -hmm. being kind of like, first of all, the Vietnam War, anti-war movement. People were revolution. Sick. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. People were sick and tired of these awful conditions that when we say structural barriers, I think that's the perfect example. She came into contact with a victim who had burns on her arms and realized It's not that there was a place that she could go. There was no place that she felt like would have been safe for her at the time. Yes. So out of those ashes, they really kind of created these new and alternative spaces so that people would have a place to turn. And I I will say, I personally, and I think I can speak for our generation, we take for granted so many of these spaces that were born at this time, like women's resource centers, I worked at the Women's Resource Center in Armenia. And today we're like, yes, I'm going to go to this space. And it's for feminist movements, all this stuff. Yeah. And we often take for granted those roots that these spaces were born in struggle. Yeah. They were born during immense violence, Mm -hmm. a.k.a. 12 black women being murdered in Boston in 1979. Yeah. And the reason this is also really interesting to me is that I was in class today. There was a great migration map that was up in the middle of this incredible presentation from my classmate on blues women and kind of the independence that they forged for themselves and the radicalism that they helped birth for Black women, but also Black people in general to just reclaim their roots and be like very unapologetic in their identities, in their wardrobe, in their style. That led all the way to disco being like what it is for black people today. Mm-hmm. Think Renaissance, Beyonce, yeah. but also like the radicalism that's kind of really contained in that music and that tradition. 
So as I'm looking at this great migration map, I see that there are different routes that we know in general, the great migration was this time during the late, I mean, during the early 20th century, early to mid 20th century, that formerly enslaved people and their descendants escaped the South to go North. Mm -hmm. And from Georgia, this journey travels to Boston or to the Northeast. Yeah. And that's the route that my ancestors took, specifically my mom, my great grandmother from Georgia to Boston. And she would have gotten there during the early, the early 19, not the early 1900s, but yeah. Yeah. Kind of that first part of the century, the first part of the century, yeah. which is kind of wild to think about because I knew her in my lifetime. Yeah. To know that they were here at this time. My dad got to this country in 1974, mm. and my mom was born in Boston and kind of lived here. Yeah. But that I wouldn't exist without this genealogy from the South, and yeah. that, like, it's really important to reflect. I know you as also having roots in Georgia, yeah. to reflect on, like, how we are also part of this genealogy or this collective without even having been born at that time. Right. And I think it's in there. It's also... In the work that they produce, like, we also find refuge. We can also find a safe haven. Absolutely. We say that with Toni Morrison and so many authors that yes. I feel like it's really special to have this example from Boston for me yeah. specifically. Yeah. To be like, oh, even back then when things were really bad. Yes. 12 murders. Yeah. And not much justice. Yeah. That people were still taking to Boston Common. Yeah. Being like, this isn't okay. Mm-hmm. And that is why the Combahee River Collective created this space in the Boston's Women's Center, for example, that functioned like a drop-in group so mm -hmm. that when people had their issues, they had a place to go to. Mm -hmm. And this is really a space for intellectual creativity, mm -hmm. a space where people could talk about politics in a very honest way, where they could just be real. And I think being real, how important is that? I mean, and also a space where it's safe to be real. Because mm -hmm. it is not safe to be real in every space you're in. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. Oh, I love it. And in a way, they just really were there to share their material resources mm -hmm. to kind of create this collective environment that, first of all, was such a thing during the 70s, 60s and 70s. When you learn about communes, when you learn about people that were fleeing from dangerous living situations to live together. Mm -hmm. Is often a lot cheaper mm -hmm. <laughs> than what rent would be today. Yeah. But I just think it's important to think about both. Yes, intellectually, they created spaces that were safer. Yeah. But physically, they created spaces where people could come to yeah. that were separate from the other ones that existed at that time that yeah. didn't necessarily specifically cater to Black women. Yeah. And to the fact that, like, also, knowledge creates safety. So, mm -hmm. like, knowing that you're experiencing something that is then you learn from other members that they're also experiencing or you have a worldview that you're thinking of and they affirm it. And so even, like, Smith talks about how, like, a big function of the group was them, like, collecting all these pamphlets and materials that they would find around and sharing it with each other and affirming each other and their politics and their lived experiences. And like this is, again, like we were saying, this was before there was like Black women's culture, Black women's studies. Like I was just thinking about how, you know, I was searching for a new therapist and even going on Black girl therapy and being able to find a list of people like 
it's really easy to take for granted, Mm -hmm. like, you know, in the internet age and whatnot, that there are all these things that we know we can go to and find resources with and for people that look like us. But back then that had to happen word of mouth and that had to happen through mail and through newsletters and pamphlets and just actually seeking out and being in spaces with other people. So we live in a different time. We do. We do. And that those times without the kind of like collective knowledge sharing that these women were doing and found so important, we would not have what we have now. Like, and you keep talking about like genealogies and like genealogies being like gene, like what comes, what's prior to then what comes in the present will be in the future, like tracking a long history of something like we don't get something like, you know, any kind of like black girls need therapy or or anything like that without the work of these women. Exactly. Um, So. So thank you, y'all. Yeah, exactly. You make the world a better place for us. Yeah. And also members emphasize that. This space that they had was a space of joy. It was a space of fun. They often refer to different moments that they called black excellence before the hashtag, which I thought was just so great. So that was amazing. And they shared that the group, they were very into astrology and they were very into Saturday Night Live. You know, I knew the girlies always loved astrology. And here's my thing. (laughs) When you go back and you read their work, it's clear they almost talk in voices that seem so close to the way Gen Z or the youth today talk. Yeah. Whether it's like, I'm a Taurus moon. Yeah. That's my moon sign, by the way. (laughs) A Capricorn sun, Cancer rising. Yeah. That's my big three, if you're wondering. (laughs) But when you go to the back of like this bridge called my back, for example, radical writings of women of color in 1981, all of their bios just seems so the word that came to my mind again is real. Like yeah. they're so relatable and like us. And mm-hmm. then you start to realize there would be no us without them. And exactly. I think that's the best lesson that comes from returning to these texts and returning mm-hmm. to the work that these women put forth for us to just be like, like you said, the affirmation of existence. Yes. Is always there. And there's humor. There's humor in it. It's supposed to be joyful, light, and fun as well. It's not just supposed to be about the pain, suffering, and injury of it all. Instead, there's light, love, and joy to it. And I think that's what we also want to stress here. Literally. And this reminds me of something that the oral history also interviewed Margot Akazawa Ray, who was one of the members of the collective. And she just had this amazing quote. She said, intellectually and in terms of values, we were on the same page. Maybe some people would talk about things more academically, but to be honest, we were all just Black girls trying to make it. There wasn't such a deep divide between the academy and Black communities, especially not in our group. Here we are, a group of Black, lesbian, feminists, anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, trying to do the right thing, attempting to make ourselves visible and to explain to ourselves and to assert our existence as political entities. Period. Period. Mm. You know, I was in a room the other day and one of my advisors was saying like, wow, it's really interesting the way that certain students have to like think themselves into being versus others. And at first I was like, think themselves into being. And I just like sat with it for a little bit. And I was like, no, that is what these women are doing. When they write this statement, they are thinking who they are into being, Mm. into something that is recognizable to both other people and to like this larger world when they end up coming out with this statement. I feel that. Yeah. Yeah. I get what you mean. 
after you said it like that because yeah. you'd used that phrase before yeah. and now it finally made sense Yeah, because we get this example where, like we were saying earlier, if they did not think themselves into being and give themselves permission to be exactly who they wanted to be on their own terms, yeah, we couldn't exist in their shadow. Probably, it seems like a negative sense, yeah. but I mean it in the way that they enabled us to be who we are today. Absolutely. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah. So like we were saying, so they're thinking themselves into being, they're doing this you know, blending there, you know, there's not a divide between politics and intellectualism and fun and joy, very much so reminding me of the erotic in our episode on the erotic. So definitely take a listen to that. So members, they met weekly in Boston, and they also held retreats in the Northeast. And they drafted the statement at these retreats. And they would often like go to these retreats at various places in the Northeast, share reading and writing materials and just think together. And so the statement was written for a book, which was Zyla Einstein's Capitalist Patriarchy and the Case for Socialist Feminism, published by the Monthly Review Press. And Demita talked about how the statement was aimed at a very specific audience, and that audience was academia. And she said, I'm glad we were all committed activists because it meant that the Black Feminist Project wasn't just an intellectual exercise nor was it isolated in some ivory tower, engaging in intellectually important ideas, but also talking with segments of the population for whom these ideas would not filter out. So in other words, she was saying, yes, we're trying to articulate our vision to this academic audience, but by being activists and being the writers who write this, we're showing that Black feminism as a project is both about thinking, but it's about action. That it's, you know, talking the talk and walking the MF and walk. Hell yeah. That's what we're trying to do here. Yes. So after its publication in 1977, its impact was massive. It would go on to circulate in anthologies and groups across the country, whether that be groups such as This Bridge Call My Back, mm-hmm. collectives that were already forming at the time. Mm-hmm. And the statement served as an organizing tool for the Combahee River Collective and for later the Kitchen Table. Women of Color Press, which was founded in 1980. Mm-hmm. So after its publication in Capitalist Patriarchy, Smith repeatedly copied stacks and mailed them to women across the country, which that is exactly what we mean by walking the walk. Yes. Not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. Yes. Because it's not enough for us to write a book and say, it's for this audience. If this audience cannot afford, cannot access, cannot reach the text or the spaces that you're trying to bring them to physically or materially, it doesn't matter. So I think this is a clear example of how they actively went against that, all those structural barriers that we've been speaking of by creating those physical spaces for drop-in hours, Mm -hmm. by sending out their work so that people could actually read it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an important point. Yes. And the statement also served as a preface and introduction to a number of Black feminist anthologies that came out in the 1980s, such as, as we were saying, This Bridge Called My Back, All the Women Are White, All Blacks Are Men, But Some of Us Are Brave, Black Women's Studies, which was a 1982 work. So, Iman, could you enlighten us? Yes. What did the statement say? Yes. So I'm going to give you guys the TLDR, which stands for Too Long Didn't Read of the Combahee River Collective Statement. And we're this time 
thinking alongside another foremother, Patricia Hill Collins' book, which is called Black Feminist Thought. How appropriate? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Knowledge, Consciousness, and the Politics of Empowerment. And this was originally published in the Rutledge Press in 1990. And another work that we're also going to be, which we brought up multiple times at this point, Mm -hmm. but it's one of my absolute favorites because I think it truly embodies all the struggles that were happening at this time simultaneously, is This Bridge Call My Back, edited by Shetty Moraga and Gloria Anzaldúa, which was first published in 1981 by the Persephone Press. Yes. So again, TLDR, this is the part of the show where we do the reading so you don't have to. But as always, you can find these works in our show notes in the Combahee River Collective Statement. Is I think it's like six or seven pages, so definitely worth the read. There are so many things that this statement gifted us. But if I had to name three things, and I would say lots of people agree with this, that the collective gave us kind of the big three would be the language of, one, interlocking oppression, two, identity politics, and three, the idea that when Black women get free, we all get free. Mm. So what did they mean by this? So interlocking oppression. So the Combahee River Collective described U.S. Black women, especially Black lesbian women, as experiencing, quote, interlocking oppression that rendered them invisible in social justice organizing and just society writ large. And that making Black women visible depended on understanding capitalism, racism, and sexism as inseparable power structures that determined Black women's lives and also structures that they were able to maybe not entirely escape from, but navigate around and survive within. And this was really radical because at the time, socialist and communist organizing was led by white men, civil rights and black nationalist organizing centered black men, and feminist organizing was the domain of white women. Mm -hmm. And so they had asserted that quote, no one before has ever examined the multi-layer texture of black women's lives. Mm -hmm. So the statement's use of interlocking oppression echoed Polly Murray's definition of Jane Crow in 1964 and Claudia Jones' definition of triple oppression. And Jones, Claudia Jones was a journalist, an activist, and a leader in the Communist Party USA. And she was surveilled in prison and deported in 1955 for her anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist activism. So this, I think, is like speaks perfectly to what you're talking about in terms of these women also representing, you know, being like a point of origin for us and our own genealogies and thinking about black feminism. But that this statement also comes out of a longer genealogy before them with Polly Murray, with Jane Crow, with Claudia Jones and triple oppression and black women naming, like giving actual names. Hey, the podcast is named Name It. Actually mm-hmm. giving names and terms to the things that they experience and that they live through and that define their lives because no one else is going to, no one else is thinking about these terms or going to come up with them. So again, they are thinking themselves into being so. Yes. So important. And to clarify, Jane Crow is not a person. (laughs) Oh, yes, yes. You know, there's Jim Crow, right? The laws that upheld segregation during this time. And then Polly Murray comes up with Jane Crow to understand the very, like, gendered and racialized aspects that segregation had for Black women. So she's doing that work of of not just seeing racism as racism, but racism as an an anti-Blackness as inherently gendered and impacting Black women in a different way than it would Black men. 
and vice versa. Yeah. So then this idea of interlocking oppression, right, it's going to go on to inform what Deborah King later calls multiple jeopardy and what we really come to know now as intersectionality. I think that's the biggest that, you know, the legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw coined and came up with. But again, looking at all of these words for describing Black women's lived experiences in navigating these just inseparable power structures. Um, But what interlocking oppression added to this, added to the idea of triple oppression in Jane Crow when it was originally published, was that they were really trying to name how particularly Black lesbian women, due to heterosexism and homophobia in social justice movements and society like writ large, were erased and their full experiences and voices weren't being accounted for. Right. I love how you said that socialist and communist organizing was primarily led by white men, that civil rights and black nationalist organizing, as you already have seen, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Mm -hmm. all the male figures leading Mm -hmm. that, that feminist organizing is then painted as this, you know, white feminist movement. Mm -hmm. And that leaves black women. Yeah. That black women are then so attendant to these absences in the room that then even within their own collective, they're Mm -hmm. saying, there's still someone that's being left out of this conversation. Yeah. And that is black queer women, mm-hmm. whether that's trans women, mm-hmm. whether that is, you know, all of the different identities that are not actively named. Mm-hmm. We are going to make that space and name mm-hmm. these silences and these absences. Mm-hmm. So the statement said, open quote, we believe that sexual politics under patriarchy is as pervasive in Black women's lives, as are the politics of class and race. We also often find it difficult to separate race from class, from sex oppression, because in our lives, they are most often experienced simultaneously. We know that there is such a thing as racial sexual oppression, which is neither solely racial nor solely sexual, e.g., the history of rape of Black women by white men as a weapon of political repression. Mm. Exactly. So they really want to, you know, it's so easy, I think. It's easy to think in, like, the black and white, and I don't mean that in, like, black and white, but I mean in, like, very distinct terms. Like, there's one thing that affects you in one way, and then there's another thing that affects you in another. And they're trying to show that, like, when it comes to power, there's no parsing it into its separate parts. Yes. Intersectionality at its root. And I think... Today, intersectionality has become so severed from these roots to the Mm -hmm. point that people think it's merely this or even the term identity politics. Yeah. People have reduced it to like a very individualized identity that people decide to take on like, oh, I belong to all these groups because I want to Mm -hmm. rather than I am a victim of these different structural barriers as a result of the state mm-hmm. producing them and then enacting them on my body because of these identities. Yes, yes. Exactly. exactly. And what would we be without the term intersectionality today? I wonder what it's so weird to think about life without this term or even our work because it's like what would have existed in the meantime the word and all of the concepts that went into that term basically existed before it even came to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's coming out of this long, like exactly what you're saying, the longer genealogy. So like before intersectionality, Patricia Hill Collins calls it the matrix of domination. 
Deborah King, like I said, calls it multiple jeopardy. And the Kumbahi River Collective called it interlocking oppression. And it also goes to show, like, right, so they talk about the history of the rape of Black women by white men. And they talk about that as an example of interlocking oppression. But in the fact that that happened and women were creating knowledge to survive that and navigate around that even before the term black feminism was a thing. It's like U.S. black women have always been out here, you know, one, yes, experiencing violence, but also surviving through it and creating knowledge and sharing it with other black women on how to survive. And like that is the ethos of black feminist thought. And it's been here. And all these words, it's been here since even before black feminism as a name. Exactly. And so it's like, what would we have if we didn't have like intersectionality? Black, we would still be intersectional because it exactly. would just be what it is. It's like they're naming it. They're, they're naming, naming it. it. Exactly. 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 <laughs> but you brought up our second term and another beautiful gift from the Kumbahi River Collective Statement, which was the term and the idea of identity politics. So. The Combahee River Collective Statement was the very first group to use this term, which is a very big deal because, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously identity politics in now is like, you know, derided or celebrated or whatever have you. But you never hear about the Combahee River Collective and this word and this term being the work and the thinking of black women and in this group. So, yeah. And so by identity politics, what they meant was that Black women's lived experiences were fertile ground for deriving politics. Mm. Mm-hmm. Period. So the statement read, we believe that the most profound and potentially the most radical politics come directly out of our own identity, as opposed to working to end somebody else's oppression. In the case of Black women, this is particularly repugnant, dangerous, threatening, and therefore revolutionary concept because it is obvious from looking at all the political movements that have preceded us that anyone is more worthy of liberation than ourselves. We reject pedestals, queenhood, and walking 10 spaces behind. To be recognized as human, levelly human, is enough. Mm. And that might have been fully human is enough, but typo on the outline. That's okay. Breaking the fourth wall. (laughs) Um, Right. But this was like a really them stating this, the fact that they could derive politics from their own identity and from their own experience. It's like I think we can take this for granted in a lot of ways. But this was a really radical at the time because the statement is coming out 12 years after the Voting Rights Act. And what is believed, right, this act is believed to have rendered U.S. black people full citizens by guaranteeing them the right to vote and, you know, and what democracy and like the project of modernity tells us is that basically the only identity that we need is the identity of citizen and our quest for freedom. Once we become citizens, you know, everybody is on the same page. Just pull yourself up from the bootstraps like you're entering into the public sphere and all that other stuff, all that private stuff, all that specific stuff doesn't matter because now you're in a free and open democracy. And so What they're saying is basically F that like my lived experience in this world as a black woman, as a black lesbian woman dealing with interlocking oppression is a form of knowledge. And it should be centered in the public sphere because it makes for better politics, better ethics, a vision for what this world can be. And that by ignoring that lived experience, you uphold racism, you uphold sexism, you uphold capitalism. Right. The Voting Rights Act didn't end any of these systems of oppression. It gave more rights and guaranteed voting, but we still have these systems of oppression that are being upheld. 
basically it incorporated people into those systems Mm -hmm. and just integrated them into what already existed rather than as was so crucial to their politics, creating those new spaces that did not exist in the first place. Exactly. And the new ideas, like they were, you know, a socialist group, an anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist group. And deriving those anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist politics, you know, yes, from hearkening back to other readers, but thinking about their own lives, how that imperialism and capitalism affects them. And so because it affects them, they know something about it. And because they know something about it, politics should be derived from that knowledge. And so Smith talks about, you know, why was this so radical at the time? Because no one else believed it. No one else believed that this should be a thing, that they should be deriving politics from, from their lives and their knowledge. So that actually reminded me of, I wrote this quote in like the Armenian Weekly in an article I wrote basically to my Armenian community in 2020, June, as you already know, the uprisings in this country. And I remember writing, there's nothing radical about choosing what is right. And I was thinking about that as we were researching for this episode, because at the time, It was only so radical because no one respected or believed in these women. Mm -hmm. And that was the root of their oppression in the first place. Mm -hmm. And what so many black women see as like being common sense or just like a fundamental right for our survival is what we have to so fiercely defend and Mm -hmm. just be like, this is what we need to survive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's deep that she stated that no one else believed believed it or believed in us, I would say. Yeah. And they had the vision so that can you imagine what the world would look like without their labor, without their work, without their ideas that they spoke into existence Mm -hmm. so that they are here with us today? Exactly. Exactly. Truly the manifesto. Yeah, they uh, manifested that. <laughs> no, actually, they were manifested that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So they even stated... Open quote, even our black women's style of talking, testifying in black language about what we have experienced has a resonance that is both cultural and political. So just as we are saying, think about pop culture today, whether that's Beyonce, Meg Thee Stallion, you know, you could name plenty. Yes, exactly. And this is what they're saying, too, right? Though our knowledge doesn't need to be translated into a sanitized white you know, rhetoric way, like just as it stands, it's going, it resonates on both a culture and a political sphere, just as it stands, no translation needed. And so I think a perfect example of this is Tamara Burke, right? She founds the Me Too movement in 2006 to raise awareness about the pervasiveness of sexual assault and violence against Black women in the communities that she's working with. And then the term doesn't get popularized and basically co-opted until 2017 when Alyssa Milano tweets using the hashtag MeToo. And so, again, this is like the perfect example of Black women's words and work are so relevant and so poignant and can be a vehicle for political change and for making better realities. But they're often not given the credit for... exactly. The movement exactly that they create and enable exactly. Mm. Mm-hmm. Alyssa Milano. See, I didn't even know that. Yeah, but yeah. now that you say it, it rang a bell. Yeah, like I remember the tweet now. Yeah, 
you know, to me, this like even example of Me Too, it just really shows that even before black women's words and knowledge enter to the public sphere, they've always been there. And I think this just reminds me of some questions that have been coming up for me this this season in particular. We brought up the Iranian revolution. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Iran right now mm-hmm. and Gina Amini and mm-hmm. all of the feminist movements that are happening there. Mm-hmm. But the reason I bring this up today is that I wasn't sure, you know, as an Armenian and an Armenian woman and a black Armenian woman, yeah. it's very complex because a lot of women from that region are entirely erased from even feminist conversations that happen within the bounds of our nation state. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to speak for all feminist movements because this bridge called my back was very global in yeah. its scope and so many anthologies are. But I bring this up to just raise this question. I saw the hashtag say her name get circulated a lot at this time. Mm. And I don't know if you want to fill listeners in about the roots of say her name. Say Say her name is a campaign that comes out of Kimberly Crenshaw's African-American policy forum to elevate the names of women and non-male victims of police brutality. Exactly. Yeah. So, again, another term that was named by Black women Mm -hmm. that has then, like, as simple as identity politics, Mm -hmm. has spread so far Mm -hmm. to the point that it becomes globalized. Yes. Just like Black Lives Matter being a movement founded by Black women. Mm -hmm. I just think it's so important for us to think about roots of these words and how they they have that. You use the word vehicle, which is Mm -hmm. why I thought, like, of a word spreading across borders and like just traveling far. Yeah. That even though their words spread so far, their names often don't make it into these spaces just the same. And yeah. why is that? You exactly. Know? Exactly. And Black feminist thought is about naming those absences and naming the people that named it in the first place. Yeah. And also, too, like I know we're going to talk about this later, but like Why is it that for something to take on like this universalized global reach, why does that predicate it on the erasure of its roots in black women's history and lives? Exactly. Pause. (laughs) Mic drop. Why? 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 I wish you could have seen Iman's face. (laughs) Why? Why? I wonder. I'm confused. (laughs) But we know. We know why. We know why. Mm. So these words and these works, they've they've always been here. And so I think Patricia Hill Collins talks about how black women have, you know, they've always produced knowledge and that they've always shared this knowledge with each other and that our lived experiences make for a distinctive consciousness. Like we have a distinctive way of thinking about this world that comes from our lived experience. But that often this knowledge is like taken for granted knowledge that also like comes through collective wisdom that's like shared on an informal and informal basis. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think this is an important time to raise up. Another thing that Smith brings up in the interview is that, open quote, there's the distinction between identity politics and representational politics. It wasn't that our identities need to be represented in some way. It was that we wanted to build a politics based on our lived experiences as a specific type of person. Representational politics, as far as I'm concerned, is black faces in high places. That wasn't on the agenda. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's a rejection of those high places. It's a rejection of that need to be incorporated into what already exists. 
and instead to be on, you know, this path towards defining identity on your own terms. Oh, yeah. And also, too, like when she says identity politics aren't representational politics, and this is what is like truly radical about the movement, right? They're not saying, I want to see a black woman be the president of the United States, or I want to see a black woman, you know, be in X, Y, and Z high position. They're saying, I want to completely reimagine this country. And I can completely reimagine that country based off of the lived knowledge, understanding all the systems of power that act and uphold these systems. Not saying that they don't want to see a black woman be the United States, but that's like, right, the difference between identity politics and representational politics. Like they're talking about something that is like so radical. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so that leads exactly to, I think, the third really, you know, important point that the statement brings up. And so we hear a lot today that, you know, when the most oppressed person is free, then we all get free. And actually, that idea comes from the Combahee River Collective, who wrote, until Black women are free, none of us are free. Hmm. And so, you know, obviously, there's been some time since the statement has published and its founders, Demita Frazier, Barbara Smith, Beverly Smith, you know, they talk about what they would have changed or revised about the statement. And so Barbara Smith has said that, you know, if they could revise something, they would make sure that in that statement, until Black women are free, none of us are free, that they, you know, included Black non-binary folks, that they included Black trans people. And again, the Black feminist thought, it's always revising itself. And what I think is so important about that statement is it gives us a way, moving away from like this trickle-down approach to liberation. Rather than moving from the margin to the center, it moves us from the margin to like further the margin and then just reimagining something different. So that like when we give black educated folks or like the talented 10th, as Du Bois called it, more opportunities or black men greater access to power, it uplifts us all. They're saying, no, that doesn't uplift us at all. That the reality is that it just includes black people into pre-existing systems of power rather than actually overhauling those systems of power. Yeah. You know, they also, you know, affirm the statement, though. And so in the oral history in 2021, they say, you know, if we could eliminate all oppressive systems that affect black women, we would have eliminated all oppressive systems, period. Period. Mm -hmm. What all Gen Z like to say, period. Period. Per. Per. Period. Uh, Think of. Period. Ooh. Exactly. This is period. Uh, Let it be known. What we were saying about language earlier, that's what we mean. Everything like TikTok couldn't exist without black feminism. (sighs) Ooh, I just got my half-baked thought. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Ooh, we're Mm. getting to that. Mm. Okay, well, that is part of my half-baked thought because I just, every day when I come across that, I'm like, this is why we can't be free. (laughs) (laughs) Like, if only you knew what you're saying because it sounds kind of funny when you say it like that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So. I want to just end with a quote, a beautiful quote Mm -hmm. that's born out of their black feminist and socialist politics. And I think it's really touching that Barbara Smith speaks about the revision of these statements to be yet more inclusive Mm -hmm. rather than defending what already exists and being like, we stand by it. You know, in the way that so many, let's name it, institutions, universities Mm -hmm. will often be like, well, we said what we said. We can't yes. take it back. Yes. We can't admit we're wrong. Yeah. We can't backtrack and apologize. Yeah. Unless it's like 50 years later. Yeah. Instead, they're like, hey, we learned something new from this group of people. Let's mm-hmm. in- include it in our politics and walk that walk. Yeah. And Sherry Omoraga, 
rewrote the forward for this bridge called my back in a new edition. Mm -hmm. And I remember she said that exact thing. Yeah. We needed to be more inclusive of trans women and non-binary people. Mm -hmm. I just think that's that's a beautiful revision. Yeah. And too, it makes me think so much about how like this idea of even like black feminist thought or like, you know, or in centering like black women, it's also the point of black feminist thought is that there's not a single archetypal like person that they're advocating for. And so Patricia Hill Collins calls it like a heterogeneous collectivity. So even amongst that collective, it's heterogeneous. And the fact that like the statement lays out like wanting to move from like margin to margin, it's like we're seeing these women in real time in their real lifetime revise their own politics to be better, to be more inclusive, to envision better. So it's really just, I think, such a role model for how you and I, right, we're so young and we're doing this and it's very vulnerable for us to be talking here and putting our ideas out there and forth. But like the fact that these women are role modeling and showing us that like there's always time, there's always space to revise who you are, revise your thinking and what you say. It's just really, I'm going to shed a tear. It Mm. takes the pressure off, right? Yeah. Because that's white supremacy. It tells you like you have to be like perfect in this moment and articulate yourself in this one way and you're never going to change your one thing forever. Like that's the fact that you're one thing forever. Like that is white supremacy. And the mm. fact that you permanent static. Exactly. Innate naturalism. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> so anyway. Transformation, yes. collectivity, re-envisioning, hair, love, light, dancing, joy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, I cut you off from closing out our oh. quote, but I just was so moved. I love it. Thank you. And another thing, another thing you said, sorry. Black feminism is about being unapologetic. Yeah. Too many of my girlies, we say sorry too often. Well, I say sorry to you. I ain't saying <laughs> sorry to everybody. <laughs> That's funny. <Period. laughs> so many of us, I catch myself like walking past someone, sorry. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, girl, take up that space. So oh, yeah. take up that space. That's I, my reminder for you yes. all. On that note, let's close with a quote. Yes. Open quote. We realize that the liberation of all oppressed peoples necessitates the destruction of the political economic systems of capitalism and imperialism, as well as patriarchy. We are socialists because we believe that work must be organized for the collective benefit of those who do the work and create the products and not for the profit of the bosses. Material resources must be equally distributed among those who create these resources. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And isn't that the perfect yeah. summary of walking the walk yes. and talking the talk? Absolutely. You can't do one without the other. You can't do one without the other. And thank you, Combahee River Collective, yes. for reminding us of these beautiful beautiful words Mm -hmm. that we can then take on and live out in our lives. Exactly. Every day we always have to think ourselves into being. I think every black woman does. But like the fact that we have their words and work to make that thinking less, just less harder. We don't need to reinvent ourselves. We don't need to reinvent ourselves. Exactly. They've already done it for us. So, Mm. Mm. Well, thank you, Combahee River Collective. We love you and we would not be who we are without you. Absolutely. So switching gears, we're going to close out on a lighter note and let's get into our half-baked thoughts. So half-baked is the segment of the show where we share thoughts and observations that we haven't fully fleshed out, but we stand 
woefully behind. So <laughs> it's going to get me in trouble. Uh, go ahead. Go get yourself in trouble. <laughs> say it with your chest. I'm going to say, yeah, I'm going to be real. As yeah. I was saying earlier, a continuation on my Quentin Tarantino riff from earlier. Yeah. Luckily, I did not forget my thought. I feel like we might have brought this up, whether in an episode or just talking before. Mm -hmm. So you might have heard me. We might have talked about this. But if you, <laughs> like so many of our statements are like this. If you do this. If you are this, I don't like you. <laughs> right. But I'm just going to name it because that's what this whole thing is right. about. It's really weird <laughs> when white directors make films about slavery because as much as we want like the representation there's a sense of like reliving that only we go through that's one-sided and the other note is like obviously the white characters are then living their like racial fantasy where they get to like say the n-word like it's their dream mm -hmm. i'm just thinking about okay django unchained yeah quentin tarantino yes 2012 right yeah and at the end of the day, that was such a gory, like, awful movie. Yeah. So it's like that fine line between being realistic, yeah. being like, shit, was that violent? Yeah. Yeah. But also being so uncomfortable by, like, it being remade in the present. Yeah. That just doesn't sit right with me anymore. Yeah. Well, and once yeah. upon a time, I think I, it's, as we were saying, very naturalized and mm -hmm. made to be normal mm -hmm. that. You know, a movie comes out. Yeah. You go see it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So many movies come out. Yes. Mm -hmm. But when it's about those topics and when it veers into like comedy, mm -hmm. it's it's giving mm. racist and weird. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know what? You, I, I don't think that's that controversial. To no, say. it's not controversial. And it's like, right, like every few years, like we need this antebellum movie to remind us of just how far we've come. Uh, right. Like, exactly. Oh, how far have we come? Mm. Mm. Okay. Mm. So my half-baked thought is all of you people on TikTok, when you clip all that random stuff on your nails and then you impersonate and you click clack and you impersonate black women, stop doing it. It is the perfect example of just mm. misogynoir. And did I say it right that time? Misogynoir. Yeah, misogynoir. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the, It's the perfect example of it, and I'm tired. Who are you mimicking? Or, or sound bites. You, who are you sound biting? I really, I really, I hate it. Oh, the sound bites. The sound like, bites are weird. The sound bite, the sound bites from black women. And then it's like all these like white TikTok women just like re-impersonating with all your gestures. Yeah. Black women, like stop it. It's disgusting. I I just hate it. Ugh, it puts a bad taste in my mouth. I agree. So this is your reminder when you make that next TikTok. Staying in your lane. Yeah, exactly. And as long as you do that, hey, we're supportive of you. I mean, everybody got plenty of stuff to work with. Exactly. You Just stay in your lane. You got plenty of stuff. Okay, <laughs> Jessica. Just kidding. <laughs> Becky. To work with. <laughs> Meme that. <laughs> Voice over that. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for tuning in to Name It. You can find us on all social media at Name It Pod and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review this episode. Tell us what you like, what you want to hear more of, or comment a big idea you want us to take on. Please share this with your friends and family. We're new pods, so we need people to listen. And as always, you can catch the articles we referenced and additional resources in our show notes and on our Instagram page. And lastly, a huge thank you to the Parvu Center for teaching and learning. 
and the public humanities at Yale for providing the resources that help make this conversation possible. Yes. All right, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. We out. Bye.